You guys awake this morning? Good. That's a good thing. Air in your lungs. Take a deep breath. All right. That's a gift from God, right? He must have you here for a purpose. Where are my Hume people at? We have very few. We have, hey, the faithful few that showed up. We had like 30 people go to Hume Lake all last week. We arrived here mid-afternoon. Um, they are probably still sleeping. If you're at home, Hume Lakers, it better be because you're COVID exposed or something. Um, man, really good to have you guys here. Rob has hinted several times this morning through prayer, through conversation, that he really wants to hear Hume testimonies today. It's not going to happen, Rob. Formally, we're doing it next week. He's praying it. He said it at our walkthrough for the service. It's just, it's just, you have to disappoint people in leadership. So Rob, sorry about that. Um, Listen, uh, it's a miracle that I can talk today. I lost my voice Monday. I tend to do this when I'm at camp. Um, and uh, probably several people have that. I'm not going to ask Lucas to sing right now, but if he were to sing a cappella, it could be rough. Uh, that meant there was a lot of shouting. There was a lot of praising. Um, most all of that is not yelling at your children, just so you know. Um, let, me, let me say this. We have a remarkable group of young people that went to Hume Lake with us. Uh, we really do. And, and I say that very specifically this. I got to experience our middle school students amongst 500 middle school students from all over California, one church all the way from Idaho. They're still driving probably right now, trying to get back home. And then in high school, um, it's 1,000 high school students from all over the place um, and Matt and I both just, we, we got to connect on Friday, middle school and high school is a little bit separate, and um, we just recounted, isn't it cool to see sort of our students and just um, the great job you guys are doing as families, as parents, um, to raise up disciples amongst all these other kids. Um, it, was, it was really an amazing week. Um, I would plead with you, go to, just like someone who goes on a missions trip, they come home bubbling with stories. These things that God did. Um, and sometimes people go, hey, how was your trip? And you go, it was really great. Can I tell you about it? And they're like, oh, good. I'm glad to hear it was good. I was praying for you. And they sort of walk on and not really sit and listen to the answer. Here's my challenge to the rest of us who didn't go, not us because I went, is ask a student, how was camp? And then really be prepared to listen and, and get to hear just sort of what went on at camp. It was really, really a spectacular week. We had a little uh, church time at the end, near the end of the week. Um, we called it NBC Mountain. There was this little spot we liked to meet when we had our church time for middle school. And, um, and we had this sense about us that someone paid a lot of money for us to be here at camp this week. It may have been your parents. It may have been you, kids, because you put your life savings into it. We did an amazing uh, job with fundraisers. So thank you, church. Thank you to anyone who participated in Flamingos or came by the car wash or something. But someone paid a lot of money for us students to carve out time and have, uh, have, have this moment together. I'm thrilled to report three of our students made first-time decisions for Christ. Isn't that amazing? I love... I love the way that our, our middle school speaker just said this. On the count of three, in front of 500 people, you're going to stand up and say, I believe. That's from Romans 10.9. If we believe in our heart, um, uh, Jesus is Lord, and confess with our mouth that, Christ, that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And dozens and dozens and dozens in that room that night stood up unashamedly to profess Jesus Christ. 
And in high school, it was the same way. There were some powerful, powerful things that went on. So praise God for that. There is a little update. There you go, Rob, wherever you are. There's your update. We'll get some more uh, later on. Um, all right, here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask, sometimes I ask real questions where I want real responses. This is one of those, okay? What I want to do, and by just kind of raise your hand so I can see what's happening, um, but call out one of your favorite things to do. If you ask me, what is your favorite thing to do? Like the number one, I would be stuck with that. But one of my favorite things, I can answer that very easily, okay? So raise your hand and call out one of your favorite things to do. Yeah, Andrew. Go to camp. Go to camp. I love it. Yeah, Joy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Excellent. What else? Nico. Johnny and Friends Camp. Awesome. Bake. Couple more. What else? What's your favorite thing to do? Play golf. That's new. In the back. Chris. Being alive? Yeah. Pickleball. Dave. Watch the Giants. Okay. Man, that was a really good spectrum. I, I, I kind of wanted that. Okay. Um, we have lots of favorite things to do. Now, here's what I want you to think about for one second, okay? Think about this. All those things that we just named, um, how did you learn to do that? So your favorite thing to do, how did you get into that? How did you learn to do that? So just ponder that for a second. I'm going to go back to some actual people to give some actual questions. And I know that Sharon's an extrovert, so we'll start with Sharon. Sharon, you said baking. How did you get into baking and who taught you to bake? Uh, my mom. Okay. And, um, being curious about that. And I, I'm gotcha. Okay. Did mom, did mom formally teach you or did you just watch her or some combination? Combination. Okay. Um, watch the Giants. Who got you into the Giants, Dave? Parents are Giants fans. And you didn't rebel against that and become a, a Dodgers fan. <laughs> you stayed the course. Okay. I've got some kids that don't like the Cowboys. It's a tragedy. Uh, but we're praying for them. So your parents, got, you, saw, you saw them watch the Giants. Did you ever go to Giants games? Oh, yeah. Okay. Went to Giants games. Um, Lou, what was yours? Pickleball. Tell me how you got into pickleball and who taught you to play pickleball. Okay, like, like formal lessons. That's a thing. Did you find that on the internet? No? Like a flyer? Like I've never seen a pickleball coach flyer before. But, but that's a thing. Okay, so, so any of the, your favorite things. Chris, this is awesome that yours is being alive. Yeah, so being alive even kind of covers it all. Um, who said praise the Lord? Joy, was that you? Okay. Um, so quite specifically, think about this. All of our favorite things to do, the things we do in life involve other people teaching us how, showing us how. So what I want to do this morning, we're going to talk about discipleship. And sometimes in a church crowd, to ask what is discipleship, people get all flustered and go, well, I don't know, let me get this right. And I want to sort of boil things down and simplify some things uh, in, in, in this way. We're going to get to an actual definition in a second for those of you who like to write things down. But all of us, catch this, all of us, without exception, are being discipled right now. We are being trained up in some way. It might be as a Giants fan, right? And as a good Giants fan, you know to hate the Dodgers, right? That's a known thing. And you also know in old candlestick that if you go on Dodgers night, not to sit in the bleachers unless you're a tough guy, 
right? Because those games could get really violent. Um, baking, right? That was, that was mom doing it. There was someone modeling it for you in, in, in front of you. And then you start to try your own hand at it. And maybe there's some coaching that kind of goes along. Pickleball, it's actually kind of cool that there's a lot of informal training, but there's also formal training that, that goes on. Think about this. Whatever your favorite things to do are, there was probably um, verbal instruction of some sort, if not that, there was, um, there was modeling. There was someone doing it that you watched and kind of learned how to do it. It's kind of interesting at camp um, because um, your pastor happens to be full of joy and passion and all of that. But you know what? I tend to not worship like this. I tend to not just the moment the first note goes, I don't just go like this. Some do. And I praise God for that. I was in a dorm one time and we had several people and I was in, in a dorm room with uh, these African students. And the moment the first chord hit, they jumped up and started jumping in a circle around, around the dorm room. And I was like, wow, people praise God differently in Africa than what I grew up with in San Jose. And so we joined them. We're like, why not? Like, let's try the jump method, you know? And it's a full body workout to worship with my African friends from college. But you can see at camp, there's whole pockets of churches that the moment the first chord hits, boom, every one of them, they're all in with their hands. Now, does that mean they're closer to God or love God more than, more than kids who are taught to worship this way with absolutely no movement? No, not at all. There's different traditions. There's different family traditions. Some of you have married into families that are far less expressive than your own. And so you're kind of like, whoa, I got to tone it down maybe a little bit just to sort of chill things out. Or maybe it's the opposite. We have some in our, in our extended family that need a quiet walk once in a while just to kind of go get away because they're not used to sort of all of the chaos. But here's what I'm saying with that. People learn to praise God by their church family. And so you tend to pick up what's going on. That's, that's a part of discipleship. Once you are in the family of God, I love that our speaker made this point on a week that I'm speaking on 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. There's your hint of where to turn if you want to go, by the way. So I'm thinking discipleship all week long. And on the last night, the last night, Friday night, the day after decision, I said, hey, if you've joined the family of God, you are now a discipler. And I was like, yes. I'm so glad you made that point. Hey, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, you are now a discipler. That's what this text is going to teach us. Uh, This text that we're about to get to um, is kind of like one of Paul's um, best hits. You know there's bands where it's like you kind of know the top hits. If you go to Spotify on any artist, there's like the top five songs, right? You kind of see what they're known for. And then if you're really into the band, you're like, oh, those aren't even the best songs. It's this song. It's a song no one's ever heard of. There's like seven listens on Spotify. But you're a true fan, so you know the deep cuts, right? This is one of the, the passage we're looking at today. If you were to take sort of the greatest hits of the Apostle Paul across all of his letters, this would make prob- for sure top 20, okay? It's a very famous verse because it's really strategic to the mission that Jesus Christ left us with. What's the mission? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. If that's called the Great Commission, it's the last thing Jesus left with his disciples. Look at how discipling in this passage fits in today. 
What is Paul doing? He's training up Timothy for all that he needs to not only live well as a Christian. By the way, the number one thing that you as a leader, as a discipler, can give to anyone you're discipling is health in Jesus Christ. Parents, be healthy in your walk with the Lord. Grandparents, be healthy in your walk with the Lord. Pastor, be healthy and pure in your walk with the Lord. That's the best thing you could possibly hope from someone leading you, is that that they're leading from a place of health and authenticity. So Paul's training up Timothy for all that he needs to live well as a Christian and how to lead well as a pastor. Timothy has a unique role. Not everyone's a pastor in the body of Christ. Timothy is. So Paul is training up young Timothy. Here's how to live well as a Christian, and here's how to lead well as a pastor. Paul is not afraid of talking openly about his suffering, about the abandonment of his teammates when the heat was on, and about his own imprisonment. So does Paul hide the hard from young Timothy? No. He doesn't like trick him into the ministry. He's really open about it. But listen to this. He's also super open about the immense source of courage and spiritual life um, that that he operates from. So now he's going to give some simple marching orders that ensures the success of the mission. Here's the the message this morning in a sentence. He's basically saying to Timothy, pastor today that you might have spiritual grandchildren who are pastoring someday in the future. Timothy, the way I want you to pastor and shepherd and live your life is to be done in such a way that a couple of generations from now, there will be pastors who are training up others to keep doing what you're doing. So we're going to read the text. I want you to watch for four generations of Christians being talked about and also how this will be accomplished, okay? Let's read it together. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Don't read it together. I'll read it. You listen. Follow along. Here it is. This is the ESV. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Again, one of Paul's greatest hits. This is something that you have heard before because it's been talked about. I'm calling this morning Disciples Disciple, period. That's it in a nutshell. Um, It's a simple, clear title, so there's no mistake. Um, Every single Christian is called uh, to make disciples, not just be a disciple. Every Christian is called to make disciples, not just be a disciple. And do you know when that begins? On your spiritual birthday. I have in my calendar one of my kids' spiritual birthdays is coming up. We marked it. It's noteworthy. It's noteworthy when a child is born. Uh, One of the beautiful things about adoption and foster care is this, is it's worth singing over and celebrating every life that starts. Every life. One of the tragedies of those who've grown up with parents who've either abandoned or, or, or perished is who is that? Who's gonna mark that day and sing it for the rest of their life? Man, that's one of the beauties of of just noting someone's birthday. But how much more powerful even to note their spiritual birthday, that they're now born again into the family of God. Man, that is noteworthy and worthwhile to celebrate. Guess when disciple-making begins? It begins right then and there 
Do you know that as a teacher, as a discipler, all I need to do is be one day ahead of someone I'm discipling and I can help them. One life lesson ahead of someone else and I can help them. So all of us are disciplers. So what is it? Well, let me just give you a couple of uh, definitions. If you're a writer, write this down. If you're distracted, start writing. It'll help you kind of zone your brain into it. But here's number one. Discipleship is you following Jesus. So if I use the word discipleship, I'm just talking about your walk with Christ. You following Jesus. That's what discipleship is. Discipling is helping others follow Jesus. Make sense? Pretty simple, right? Discipleship is your own walk with the Lord. It's you following Jesus. Discipling someone else is helping them follow Jesus. Now, that's a really broad definition on purpose because I believe that's how discipleship actually looks. Discipling takes many, 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 many forms. And we're going to get into just a few of them here this morning. So what I want to do is I want to start by looking very clearly at the context of the scripture. What is the Bible saying? And then there's some principles that I'm going to extract from that, and we're going to sort of broaden it from there, okay? So looking at the text and saying, what is the Bible saying? Well, remember the context. Again, this is Paul, a pastor of many, many churches, raising up young Timothy. We know from other places in scripture, we can actually track their relationship. Part of discipling is this. He says, I want Timothy with me. me. He brings Timothy on ministry journeys. He goes and does ministries and grabs Timothy to go with him. Do you know how to disciple people? Do what Paul did. Bring people with you. God connects hearts to people, to one another. Go, I don't even know why. I just have an affinity. I like being around you. Would you come do this with me? One of the things we do at this church all the time is this, is um, if I'm going to go do a visitation, Not all visitations are appropriate to bring other people. Sometimes it should be just the pastor. But always I ask my brain, who should I bring with me? If I'm going to go do something, who should I bring with me? Who can learn to do this? Who might come and do it way better? One of the things we used to do all the time is the week, I think the week of Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving weekend, we'd go up to San Francisco, and we'd walk the streets of the um, Civic Center around San Francisco and just minister to homeless people. What's powerful is from 9 a.m. until 9 p.m., there's a lot of suits, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of traffic, there's a lot of things happening, and then 9 o'clock hits, and a whole different side of the city sort of shows its, its head to us. And we would just take Bart there, we'd show up, we'd have bags and bags of socks and sweatshirts and uh, all kinds of stuff. One of our homeless guys that became a member of our church, um, he had a total sweet tooth, and uh, so after that, we started bringing candy. And guess what was the biggest hit? The candy. They're like, socks and blankets are great, but that Snickers bar looks awesome. Can I have that? Yeah, have a Snickers bar. So we'd go walk the streets of San Francisco. And um, God brought this guy to our church named Alex. Some of you remember Alex. If you've ever seen Alex, you'll never forget Alex. You know why? He has tattoos all over his head. Alex is a giant, imposing man. At all times, he looks like he wants to kill you. He doesn't. He's a God-fearing image bearer of Christ, and he witnessed everywhere he went. At men's group, he'd constantly bring someone. I'm like, who's this? Alex, introduce your friend. I don't know. I just met him at Denny's. The guy's shaking in his boots. I think he just came to church because he's like, I think this guy's going to eat me if I don't. So he came to church. 
his very first time at men's group, he's asking every single person in the men's group, are you saved? Have you, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior? I'm like, Alex, that's awesome. Like you're passionate. I brought Alex to walk the streets of San Francisco with me. I had a hunch this would happen. I mean, Alex witnesses anyways, like just every day, all day. But we get up on the streets of San Francisco one time. I went up to a person, put my arm around him, asked, asked this person's name. We talked. I said, hey, is it okay if I pray for you? Yeah, anything to pray about? I don't know. I'm homeless. I'm living on the streets. Think of something. Okay. So I pray. We all gather around. We pray. Next person we came to, like 10 feet away. Alex, you're up. Go. Alex didn't even really need me to show him how to do it. Guess who's been homeless before? Alex. Guess who knew what it felt like? to have someone put your arm around you for the first time in a long time and address you by your name, Alex. Guess who was sort of a super spiritual all-star at walking the streets of San Francisco that night, Alex. That's just bringing Alex along with me. If I'm going to go do this, a guy who's grown up in the suburbs, I've never been homeless, I'm going to bring Alex. And I talked to Alex later on that night. I said, Alex, did you notice how many walls came down because you had tats all over your head? He's, He's really ashamed of his tats, by the way. Those tats were gang tats. He said, man, if I could, I'd take every one of them away. But I said, you know what? God's using your gang tats all over your head and face. It's unmistakable that they're there. And he's using them like a Bible track for the glory of God. So stinking powerful. So just, just bringing them with them. That's what, that's what Paul is doing. Paul is now on death row. He's locked up. He's pretty certain he's going to die. He's actually right. The Roman emperor Nero is about to take Paul's life. Guess what Paul's still doing? He's discipling Timothy. Why? Because the word of God is never bound. So he's writing letters to Timothy. He's still mentoring him on how to do it. You know, not every assignment or season is equal. There are places and times that present extra challenge to to a person and to a pastor. And Timothy evidently may have been tempted to to bail on this whole thing. He may have been tempted to leave. Paul has said very specifically, stay put, Timothy. Stay in Ephesus. But Ephesus is hard. Ephesus doesn't have a lot of people around me that vote like me and think like me and pass laws like me and want to worship God like me. It's really hard being here. Remember from last week, sometimes courage requires staying put. Paul's saying, stay put, minister. You be a light in a dark place. Here's what's interesting about Timothy is Timothy did not need more from God. He needed to use what God had already given him. Look back at verse one. It says that we are to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How much grace is available from Jesus Christ our Lord? Can anyone here measure it? Put your arms out. Like, we can't quite reach it, right? Go to the ocean and try to scoop up the ocean. If you ever go to the ocean, think about this. Wave upon wave of God's grace is available to us. (sighs) Strengthen yourself in that. So many times we pray, God, I need more of you. No, you don't. Access what you already have. Be strengthened in the grace of God. That is yours, Christian, in Christ Jesus. It's already yours. Just access it. Let me do a quick thing on be strengthened, and then we'll move on to sort of the the part of this greatest hits that gets the most airplay. Paul's firm here, but he's loving. He uses the term my son. 
Remember from 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he addresses Paul, I mean, he addresses Timothy as my son in the faith, my true child in the faith. There's this father-like love and tenderness and firmness. There's a command here to do this. Paul has invested years in discipling this guy. And now he's doing it even when he's sensing his own demise. If you look at the word be strengthened here, there's two things I want to point out. Number one is it's an imperative. That means it is a command. Parents, isn't it cruel of you to command something of your children that they are incapable of doing? I have an eight-year-old right here. Everly, raise your hand. If I were to say, yeah, give it up for Everly. We have a 11-passenger white Ford van. It is for sale, by the way. Come talk to me afterwards. If I needed that van moved, it's parked on the street right now. If I needed that pulled into the driveway and I tossed the keys to Everly and I said, Everly, move the van. That's a command that my daughter cannot do. Right? That's cruel. That's actually cruel and unusual punishment for a child. It's very confusing. How can I do that? I don't know how to drive a van, right? Uh, she can drive Mario Kart. She can do that, but she can't drive a van. So it's cruel to give a command to someone who can't do something. So any command you ever get in scripture that is for you, everyday Christian, here, here, listen to this. That means it must be possible to do it. So be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's a command. You must do this. Now, when I think about the idea of, of being commanded to strengthen myself, it kind of thinks like working out, right? Like work out, get ready, get fit and stay fit and ready for this. Why? Because a battle's coming. There's some challenges coming where you will need to be strong. When is the time to be strengthened? Before that comes. There's all kinds of things we can do with God's grace. We can rest in God's grace. I think that's a biblical thing to do. Much of Sunday morning for me, you guys, is a deep breath. It's a reset. <laughs> That's right. My name's written in the book of life. I have everything I need. I'm good. It's all good. We can rest in, in, in God's grace. We can celebrate grace. But here we're told to be strengthened in God's grace. It's a little different kind of a nuance of what's going on. But here's the other thing about it. Not only is it an imperative, which means it's a command. Timothy, my son, be strengthened. Go do this. No ifs, ands, or buts. Here's the second thing. It's passive. The language is passive. What does that mean? It means that doing this is not from himself. He is to do this, but the strength is not to come from himself. Remember, we looked at last week that courage is contagious. All of our great stories call the protagonist, the hero of the story. They have some challenge in front of them. And it's going to take more courage and more strength and more wit than they know how to come up with. And so many of our stories say, we've got to well this up from within us. Deep within us comes this courage we didn't know we had. And we vanquish the enemy and we win. And we love that story. You know why? It's God's story. Here's where the world without Jesus perverts it and twists it. The strength that comes from within is not from you. We looked at this last week. Courage is contagious. Where does courage come from? From the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Before Jesus sends out his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, what does he say? Listen to this. All authority 
has been given to your master and savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples. I prayed this morning for a guy on our campus who apparently was held in chains by some demonic forces. And I just prayed in the name of Jesus, the one who has authority over every unseen and seen realm to do what he promised to do. You know what Jesus came and preached? He preached the year of Jubilee message, which is this. I have come to release captive, I mean, to to release those who are captive, um, to set the prisoner free, to heal those who are sick, to raise the dead. That's what Jesus came to do. And friends, we had an image bearer made in the image of God who was screaming things that were demonic on our campus this morning. And so I appealed to the one who has all authority. The name above every name is not just something we sing. It's something we pray in the moment over the lives of individual people. Do you know how that story resolved? One of the things you do as a small church pastor, and you're the first one on site, is you, you sometimes need to dial 911. We had the officers out here this morning. If I had someone here on site that was kind of violent and acting in a way that I couldn't have children around. The officers did what they're called to do. They, they talked to him. He left. He came back. And when he came back, we actually asked him to leave again. He was very polite. He left. He came back a third time. Do you know what happened the third time? God used someone in our church who was potentially going to skip church today, he told me. He said, no, but I had to get to church. He had a long trip yesterday. He's got stuff going on today. Shows up at church, and this guy, this guy has walked the path that this gentleman has walked before. Filled with drugs, filled with homelessness, filled with hate, filled with chains, filled with bondage. And this guy in our church got to minister to this person here this morning. That's a small act of discipleship, by the way. Planting a seed, loving a person, treating them with respect. All authority has been given from God. The Holy Spirit, not you, is who's working in your life. So what does strengthening yourself and the grace of God look like? How many, how many, how many have a, day, a, a daily quiet time? Even if it's not 100% seven days a week, how many have a daily quiet time? Okay. I hope this is a regular, normal part of, of something. When I, was, when I was trained of how to be a Christian disciple, I was told you should have a daily quiet time. What's that? I'm a kid who has a hard time sitting quiet, in case you can't tell. Well, a daily quiet time looks actually like being quiet, actually. And, um, and it not only means um, prayer is, is addressing God, but it's also being addressed by God. So sometimes my daily quiet time, often, most days, part of my daily quiet time is this, sitting quietly. Go figure. And just, and just hearing from the Lord. Do you know that I am the beloved? I am the beloved son because of Jesus Christ. That's right. I sit with that. I start my morning with that. Almost every single day without fail, I either listen to or read the scriptures. It's actually my great delight to do so. It's a gift of God. I know there are some of you who struggle with this and you discipline yourself. Keep at it. There are seasons of dryness where it's hard to read the scripture. There are seasons where you just can't get enough of it. You're drinking it in. But a daily quiet time means being addressed by God, addressing God, and reading his word, hearing from him. So that's a daily quiet time. One of the things we say around, uh, uh, actually, this is one of the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. Be still 
and know that I am God. You know one of the great gifts of Hume Lake? You don't have signal for your phone. So do you know how many times I had to tell junior hires, hey, get off your phone? Zero. None. Our phones worked as flashlights, and our phones worked as cameras, for the most part. There was a few kids that probably needed to be told that. But in junior highland, that's how it worked. The easy one for my kid is he doesn't have a phone. So it was really easy never to tell him to get off the phone. Um, Guys, camp provided an opportunity to just be still and know that I'm God, to get away from sort of a lot of distraction and morning and evening hear from God. Um, We actually have carved out into our time some time to just be quiet and be alone with God. Now you can choose to use it or not and all that, but it's a beautiful sort of picture of that. Strengthening yourself in the grace of God looks like prayer before a hard conversation. Some of you have hard conversations. You're having a hard time tracking with me because you know there's a hard conversation coming. I've been there. Some of you feel it in your heart. Your heart beats faster. Some of you feel it in your palms. Some of you feel it in your stomach. Some of you feel it in your head. You get a headache because you go, oh, I should probably talk to that person. I don't want to. It's a hard conversation. Oftentimes, love demands we have hard conversations. Strengthening yourself in the grace of God is this. I can oppose this person in the name of love, and I don't need their approval back. Why is it a hard conversation? Because they may reject you. Why is it a hard conversation? Because they may bring up something that you're struggling with and you don't even want to go there or talk about that. Strengthening yourself in the grace of God looks like prayer before a hard conversation. It also looks like being disciplined to read the Bible and keep your mind on eternal things in little snippets. You don't need to read whole chunks of the scripture. Be still and know that I am God. That goes with you wherever you go. God, I've got five minutes before my next meeting. I intentionally carved out time between meetings. I'm going to be still for five minutes right now. I'm not going to think about what's coming up. I'm not going to think about what just happened. That's right. You're on your throne. You're sovereign. You know all things. You know all possible outcomes. You've got this. Be still and know that I am God. It also looks like gathering with the saints. You know what? Check that one off. You being here this morning is wildly important to your discipleship process. Just meeting with the believers, gathering together. It's not just for you. The Christianity is a team sport. You being here actually is an encouragement to someone in the back row that someone else is here. I got several texts from people. Hey, I got a few symptoms. It may not be COVID. I'm not sure. I'm just watching from home. Hi from home. Thanks for letting me know that you're not here. These are people who are normally here. Sharing is caring unless it's COVID, right? Then, then it's something other than caring. Um, but gathering weekly, you know what else? It looks like singing in the very heart of the battle. We're going to sing a song, Cornerstone, right after the sermon today. And watch for this line. The weak made strong in the Savior's love. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. We are commanded to do that which gifted to us, which is we're made strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. We say this around here sometimes. It sounds like an oxymoron until you think about it. Rest in the finished work so that you can strive at the good work. Rest in the finished work looks like Sunday morning's coming and once again marveling at the grace of God. I had a conversation right out here about the cross being that Jesus Christ carried for us. The burden he carried for our sin. This person's not losing the wonder and the the incredible nature of the gospel. 
So that's part of resting in the finished work. So that, with that as a foundation, man, we can strive at the good work. God's got a work for us to do. It will require energy and strength, and that's why we're told to strengthen ourselves. All right, here's where we're going next week. He's talking about sharing in the suffering, and he actually gives us a few different metaphors. He's starting this week with a teacher. Think about, think about these. Four key elements of a strong, obedient spiritual life. He uses the image of a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Okay, that's where we're going to go next week. This week we're looking at teacher, teach those who will teach others. But a teacher, a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Each of these are required not only to share the gospel, but share the life of the gospel, the good news life, the life of Jesus Christ. All right, so now let me broaden this principle. So Paul is writing to Timothy, to a pastor, and he's specifically talking about him raising up other pastors. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... What did Timothy hear from Paul in the presence of many witnesses? Last week, we, he said it this way, follow the pattern of the, of the words. Elsewhere, he calls it sound doctrine. So it's a set of teaching that is not done in secret. So only the leaders kind of have this special knowledge from God. He says that it's in the presence of many witnesses. This is a body of teaching and a way of life that is on public display, kind of like what we're doing right now. What's interesting now is every word that's said by a preacher from this stage is now recorded uh, and put on the internet for all of time. You know what the scriptures say about those who talk a lot? Where there's much words, there's much sin. (laughs) Whew, that's pretty sobering for any teacher. I'm called to teach, and I'm called to put things out, but it's done in a public setting. It's done in a public way. Not just my words, but my actions, my lifestyle. Paul says, look, this has been done in the presence of many witnesses. What he's describing is an upfront, formal ministry setting. So this sound doctrine, this way of life that Paul says, Timothy, I've done this in front of you, in front of many, you already know what I'm talking about. This you are to entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Doesn't it make sense that the mission of Jesus Christ dies if we raise up spiritual superstars who do all the work and then eventually die? Some of you have known or been a part of churches that had such a dynamic, singular-focused leader around that ministry, and it was a whirlwind, but it always came back to that one individual, superstar pastor or whatever, And when that person fell in sin, when that person left for a different church, when that person did what we're all going to do unless the Lord comes back and keels over and dies, the ministry dies with it. So strategically, Paul is just telling us, here's how the mission carries on and on and on from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. It's that you entrust to faithful men those who will be able to teach others. Do you ever wonder, Dave, who made you the preacher? How come you're up front? You're not even that good of a speaker. You've got weird hair. I don't know, whatever, whatever you're thinking, I'm not sure. Maybe you're like, you've got great hair. But it's going away. It's a little frightening. Um, it's a good thing that you wonder who's the leader in the church. You ought to wonder that. There's a giant leadership crisis in our world. 
Think about every single sector. There are leaders that are falling left and right. You, it's a good thing to wonder, who is it that gets to be the leaders in the church? Do you know that the Bible's really open about that? It provides an open book thing to say, here, here is the prerequisite for who gets to be leaders in the church. It's done on public. This is not a good old boys club where one person picks another person, picks another person, picks another person. And you're like, how do I get in on that? Or who, made, who was the first person? The Bible is really clear about what kind of lifestyle and characteristics ought to be there and, um, and, and, and that there's faithfulness. You know what it talks very little about is gifting. Is teaching a gift a spiritual gift? It is. Every spiritually born-again person gets a spiritual gift. But what's talked about far more is character and faithfulness. Character and faithfulness. Those are the things that the Bible stresses. And those ought to be visible in church leaders. Let me tell you why this church, when you give to this church, you are investing in future leaders. Did you know that? Right now, we have Lucas sitting here in the front row, and Ellie, who I just spent a week with at camp, pouring her life out into junior hires. By the way, our youth team did an incredible job spending 24 hours a day for the last seven days with our students. Give it up for our youth leaders. Come to think of it, Catherine Scott isn't here. She's probably wiped out as well. So hi, Catherine at home. I haven't heard from you, but she would be here uh, normally. But we invest in interns around here. We invest in future leaders. And part of how we do that is we, um, we, we hire them. We hire them and say, hey, rather than working more time over at that restaurant, let us help support and help pay the bills so you can be here and do what you're wanting to do. A part of investing in them is formal education. Right? This is why we have um, Bible schools and Christian colleges and seminaries. That's why we have books and commentaries. One of my favorite pictures, I went and looked for it this morning but didn't have time. One of my favorite pictures is in 2005, I believe. I, was, I, I got the rare privilege, rare for me at least, to teach um, in central China where they don't see a lot of white people. We were a novelty wherever we went. Me and five other people were there. And we got to teach at this Christian college. And do you know how you got to be at this Christian college? Your whole town saved up money to invest you to get to go for one year to this college. So here I am in front of them, and I happened to be there on the very day that they got a commentary this thick on the whole Bible. Brand spanking new. You know why? Because some church in the U.S. said our part in raising up young new ministers in China is to pay money to give them all a brand new book. So there was probably 60 students, young and old, at this college. They lived here for a year or two of training. And I was there the day that they passed out these books. And this was so humbling to me. If you've ever seen my office, I have a lot of books. These students held this book and tears are streaming down their face. They're so overjoyed that they have a commentary to help them digest and understand and then help teach others the scriptures. I happened to be up next. One of my sessions was next. So I got up and I said, hey, would you all, would you all hold up your book? It's just, I hope I still have it. It's like 
not make their owner's worth, but they're holding it up, and you just see these smiles and tears of these young and old Chinese Christians who are being trained to train other Christians so that the kingdom of God will move forward in China. <sighs> Such a powerful moment. That's a picture, that's a picture of discipleship in its most formal state. Let me move quickly into this. When it's formal, by the way, there's things like theology class. What is theology class? Theology class is like a doctor that understands the bone system, uh, the digestive system, the nervous system, and sort of how do all these systems fit and work together? That's sort of what theology is like when you go to a Christian college or a seminary. There's, there's classes like homiletics. What's homiletics? It's how to accurately teach and preach the Bible. There's all kinds of amazing training that goes on in formal settings. But there's all kinds of informal ways as well. My dad had this rare gift. My dad was one of the godliest people I ever got to know, and I happened to be closest to him. So it's a really beautiful picture. I'm thankful every day for that. It's going to sound like a strange gift, okay? But his gift was this. He got to find out he was sick before he died. And in the weeks and months that he was first diagnosed with cancer to the time that he actually left his body and got to go be with Jesus, he got to just do all kinds of things. But one of the things that stood out to me most was we're sitting at the childhood home I grew up in over in West San Jose. He's at the kitchen table and he's opening letter after letter after letter. He's from a generation where people mail letters, okay? So he's opening letter after letter. He had some, probably had some email as well. And my dad's crying. And I said, Dad, what's wrong? And he goes, I just don't understand something. And I'm like, well, what is it? And he was super coherent, so it wasn't like that. He said, all these people are thanking me for the investment I've made in their life. Person after person. I haven't talked to this person in 30 years. I don't even remember doing much for this person. And the thing that confused him is he just didn't really understand why they were so thankful and why he made such a big impact. But here's the reason. My dad lived a life as a disciple who discipled. He just gave his life to people. And the reason it was confusing for him is my dad was a microwave engineer at Lockheed for his whole career. He wasn't a pastor, but he pastored. No one officially looked at him as a teacher, but he taught. So for my dad, as I sat and thought about it, I thought, boy, discipleship often looks like friendship. Discipleship looks like listening really well. Hey, how was camp? No, really, how was camp? I'm all in. Tell me about it. What was the best part? Discipleship looks like listening. Discipleship looks like coaching. Discipleship looks like eating together. Discipleship looks like doing a project together. Discipleship looks like being attentive and watching. Discipleship looks like asking really good questions. Discipleship looks like courageous love. Man, we could go on and on. Let me give you a a few things from Jesus. Discipleship looked like preaching the word. Many, many times he was teaching, he was teaching, he was teaching. He taught them in parables. Once he told the parable, he'd pull them aside and give them more teaching. For Jesus, discipleship looked like healing diseases, like commuting together. You know what commuting together is? Them walking from one place to the next. You ever track geography of Jesus? They walked long distances together. Provides for good conversation. Discipleship looked like Jesus calling people to follow him. Discipleship looked like Jesus eating with people who were the outcast, the no-cast, and the low-cast. Discipleship 
looks like a lot of things. You know what? That was Mark chapter 2, by the way. I just happened to read Mark chapter 2, probably on Monday for my reading plan. And I just thought, you know, I'll just take a few notes. What does discipleship look like for Jesus? Stay close to the Gospels. You'll learn what it looks like to make disciples. Let me make it unmistakably clear about NBC. How does this happen at my church? How does discipleship look at your church? This is the play button. Unless you are fairly new here, you have seen this quite a bit. The play button is a living metaphor for what it means to be a Christian. Worship is being a relationship with God. Community is being a relationship with one another. And sharing has everything to do with not only evangelism, but training up. Do you see what's at the very top of the play button in red? Make disciples, period. Why is it in red? Anyone? Anyone have a red-letter edition of the Bible? What, what's a red-letter edition of the Bible? The words of Jesus are written in red, right? We put this in red to say, Jesus said this. So everything that falls under this, worship, community, share, even the very metaphor of a, of a play button, all of that is under the realm of making disciples. This is what we do because this is what Christians do. So Sunday and midweek community groups, those are sort of the left pedal and the right pedal of us moving forward and making disciples. You being here, you being committed and an active member of a community group. Do you know what the tagline of our family ministry is? It's this, helping families raise disciples. Do you know what we said at the very start of Hume Lake as leaders? We said, listen, everything we are doing this week at camp is to help families raise disciples. As soon as I got the final checklist, Matt put this out to all the elders and elders' wives and said, would you pray daily, not just for the students going to camp, but for the families of those students. You know why? We're just going to have them for a week of camp. God charges the family to be God's greenhouse of spiritual growth. So everything we did this week at camp was to help families raise disciples. Do you see a theme here that we're pretty strategically focused around this? Here's what we've come to understand is this. You will grow in your spiritual walk when you help others grow in their spiritual walk. It's just a fundamental truth. Every parent knows this. Parents, you're probably better, at your, uh, 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 you're, you're better than your kid at baseball if your kid is two. Right? You just are. Even if you're super clumsy and you hate baseball and you're not very good at it, you're better than a two-year-old. Congratulations. But as you start to help that kid, what, what you're doing is you're actually getting better at baseball as you help that kid get better at baseball. Wouldn't it be amazing if someday they got way better than you? What if you were like state champion at your sport? Man, the thrill of a parent would be that, that they take down dad's record. That would be amazing. I can't think of a more exciting thing. That's just sports. What about when it comes to eternal matters of the soul? Man, you will grow as you try and help your kids grow. I referenced Tate, the theologian, last week. He's my eight-year-old. Right before dinner, he's asking deep theological questions about the coherency and the transmission of the scriptures. You will grow as you help your kids grow. That's just a fundamental truth. 
This whole idea of share that you see up here. Yes, it means evangelize. Yes, it means use your resources, your money, your time, your talent, your tattoos all over your head. Use it all for the kingdom of God. Did God give you a bum leg and you limp around with that bum leg? Use it for the kingdom of God. Did God give you an incredible athletic body that can go and go and go? Use it for the kingdom and glory of God. And all the highs and lows of whatever God's given you, put it to use for the kingdom of God. But it also means train up. We have this whole idea of bench strength around here. What it means is we want to constantly be raising up people behind us that are doing the same thing. In fact, one of our values is said very specifically this way. Get things done through others. Don't just get things done. As a staff, if you're doing it all, you're doing it wrong. Why? Because people are the mission. We had a game at camp, middle school. And what we had to do was we had to have some kids in an inner tube and they were going to battle three other teams. And what you had to do is you had to rip the kid out of the inner tube, then take the inner tube, come back to your cone, and put it on the cone. The winner of the game is those with the most cones. Here's what teacher Dave knew. It's that most people in the pool would get super distracted from the mission. If I come over and I try to grab Rob out of an inner tube and we're yanking back and forth and then someone tries to grab me and they're yanking over here, I might go, I'm going to get back at that guy. He kind of clawed me. That's cheap and dirty. So all of a sudden, I am focused on getting people out of their tube or getting back at someone. Or I'm super scared of all of this and I'm going to go paddle in the corner and hide. All the while missing the only thing that matters, which is inner tubes on the cone. So our girls were going, we had a water polo player, by the way. Guess, guess which team won? I like to think it's because they're well coached. But I said, listen, you guys, nothing else matters except, except inner tubes on the cone. Nothing. So stay in your thing, battle, but always just be listening. We're going to be calling out. So we won by a mile on our first game because we didn't lose sight of the mission. Other kids got into battles and got into fighting, got super distracted about what was happening. It all matters that you get the inner tube on the cone. All we're doing as ministers is building up other people so they can do the ministry. That's it. We are not raising spiritual superstars here. In fact, we have failed. If you have a mindset that says, oh, that's what we pay our pastor to do, then we have failed, or you have failed. There's been a failure there somewhere. That is not what we're called to do. We also say make it helpful, not just truthful. Think about this whole idea of passing a baton, right? We have joined a race already in progress. We have one lap to run. And the success of this is passing this on to the next generation. I can't possibly pass on what I don't have. So if I'm not familiar with the truth and don't have a handle on the truth, I can't pass it on to someone else. But furthermore, if they can't get a handle on it, then I failed. Jesus does this better than anyone. He makes things helpful, not just truthful. I'm going to give you some final parts next week because we just run out of time. But let me leave you with this. Um, I, think that, I think that discipleship is, is constrained if it's complicated. Discipleship is constrained if it's complicated. Let me say this, much of discipleship looks like planting a seed in the ground, 
tending to it a little bit, watering it, and then mysterious things happen, time passes, and you sort of marvel at what has come of that little seed. Much of discipleship is adding a little bit of yeast to some dough, and you knead it, and you get it all in there, and then you leave it. And there aren't many likes, there aren't many shares, no one does a fanfare, no one does a giant documentary on you. It's just these little tiny acts of spiritual love. What's discipleship? It's helping others follow Jesus. Tiny little seeds, tiny little amounts of yeast, and then time passes, and this incredible harvest comes to pass. Van, why don't you come on up right now? This week I began, I, I, I got to go back to where I began in ministry. I began in ministry as a junior high counselor at my church in the very cabins that I just slept in this last week. You know what's kind of cool? One of the kids I used to take to camp is named Catherine Scott. Catherine Scott was a counselor this year. So I got to go with someone whose who's parents and church and youth pastor invested in years and years and years ago up at Valley Church in Cupertino. And now here's Catherine with me ministering to my daughters. Do you know why I went to camp that first time? It's because when I was in junior high at Hume Lake, I saw some college people investing in me for the week, just really seeing me, really loving me, helping me follow Jesus as best they could. So from the time I was in junior high, I began to have a vision for, man, that helped me a lot in my walk with Christ. I want to do that for other kids. That's it. It looks like as simple as going to camp, making an investment. Jesus, thank you so much for the mission we've been given. We rest and celebrate and are strengthened by the fact that all authority is yours. All strength is yours. These songs have been singing that you're our refuge. God, that, that you're our cornerstone. God, make us strong today. And we commit to cooperate with you to strengthen ourselves in the love that is in you. In Jesus' name.